All right, why don't you guys open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I know that for some of you, this is like the third time that you have to hear me speak this week. I know. I feel the same way that you do. So blessed. But we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 18b to 26. Um, So let me read it for us, and then I'll pray. Okay? So Philippians 1, starting in verse 18b. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. God, we ask for your help now as we look into your word. Help us to truly see and be convicted Um, and convinced that Christ is our life, um, and that because of that, that we can even say that to die is to gain. And so, do a work on on our hearts now, Lord, um, by your Spirit. We thank you when we pray this in Christ's name. What are you obsessed with? Or what would others say that you are obsessed with? Um, And I don't think we like that term, right? Obsession or being obsessed with something. Uh, Maybe for you, you would like to use the term passionate instead. Like I'm passionate about sports uh, or I'm passionate about music or I'm passionate about like this thing or that thing. Uh, For us, when we think of the term or the word obsession, we think of a person who is absolutely and totally devoted to something to the point where it's like not normal, right? That's what you guys think of when you think of the word obsession. For example, uh, people aren't passionate about K-pop. They're obsessed with K-pop. Um, or that guy isn't passionate about working out. He is obsessed with working out, and he looks at himself like way too much in the mirror. Um, when I think of obsession, I think of <coughs> the GOAT, Kobe Bryant, um, who people would say was obsessed with basketball. He would have these crazy workout stories uh, when he would show up um, on the basketball court. Um, I learned a term uh, the other day. I won't say it because I think it might be derogatory, but it, it's a term that refers to someone of foreign descent who is like really into Japanese culture. <laughs> right? And you think of that like obsession. In other words, when we think of someone who is obsessed with something, that obsession has become their defining reality. It has become the center of their universe, right? To the point where, sorry, guys. To the point where it's become all-consuming and even unusual and strange. Like, uh, like you want to say to these kinds of people, like, it's time to come back to the real world, right? That kind of thing. Well, as we look at our passage tonight, I think it would not be far off to say that Paul was obsessed. His obsession was Christ. And I think if you were any casual observer, you would have taken one look at Paul's circumstances. Remember, he's writing from prison, and you would have 
seen some of the things he's writing, and you would have thought to yourself, Paul, like, buddy, it's time to come back to the real world. Right? It's time to, to come back and to be normal. And yet, Paul's obsession with Christ can lead him to say strange things, um, like, to die is to gain, <clears throat> or that I'm confident that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I know that verse 21 is uh, the well-known verse in this passage, right? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And rightfully so, this verse serves as the anchor for our text. It's the basis for why Paul can say the things that he does. Um, this was the philosophy of his life. This was his, his obsession. When we look at the verse, I don't want us to get caught up on those first three words there, right? For to me. And just think to ourselves, oh, this is like, this is Paul's kind of thing. Like, this is just for him. Uh, this is his personal life motto. Uh, just, this is just like for serious Christians like Paul, apostles, that kind of thing. Now, I think when we read verse 21, God's word teaches us that this must be the philosophy of life for all of us. That this must be true of you. This must be how you view life. Not just if you're Paul, but if you are a Christian that you must think this way, you must see life, death, and everything in between in this way if you want to live a life that is fruitful to the glory of God and the good of others. And I think what Paul shows us is that when you begin to see uh, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, then, as we see in Paul's example, then you can know joy in any circumstance. And you really believe that, when you're really convinced of that, then you can know joy in any circumstance. It's not a delusional kind of way, but it's a way that transcends your current circumstances to this hope that you have in the future. That if you really believe this, to live is Christ and to die is gain, then you have a reason to live, you have a hope in death, and you have a reason to rejoice in both of them. Let me just give us some context um, for where we are. As we saw last time in verses 12 to 18, Paul is providing an update uh, to his dear friends at Philippi of how things are going. He's in prison, um, and he writes in this previous section, verses 12 to 18, that his imprisonment is reason for rejoicing, right? For, for two reasons. One, it's opened up doors to preach the gospel to the Roman guard. So it's given him opportunities to preach the gospel that he wouldn't have had uh, otherwise. And then two, it has served to encourage the brothers outside to be even more bold for the gospel. Well, we move to our text for tonight, verses 18 to 26, and Paul is continue, continuing his update, and he switches from present to the future. So look at verse 18. He says, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So that's present. And he goes on, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. So he says he can rejoice in his present circumstances because of how God has worked to advance the gospel. But not only that, he can also continue to rejoice because God will continue to be faithful. Christ will continue to be exalted no matter what happens in the future. I think in our text, um, Paul shows us what a life looks like when you are convinced that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That when Christ is your singular passion, when he is your ultimate ambition, then this, this is what it looks like to live is Christ. Okay, so three points for us uh, for tonight. Number one, 
when to live is Christ, then number one, your future is secure. Your future is secure. Like we said, Paul can say with confidence that he will continue to rejoice into the future. Um, and in these verses, he tells us why that is true. Okay, so look back at verse 18. Um, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So why can Paul continue to rejoice? Reason is all of this, he says, will turn out for my deliverance. And what is he talking about here? Is he saying, like, this is going to turn out for my release from prison? Um, that, that Greek word there for deliverance is the word soteria. Okay, soteria. And uh, it's the word from which we get the word soteriology. You guys know soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And so um, that's that word there. Deliverance is salvation. And so though Paul might have in mind deliverance from his chains, being freed from prison, I think what he's more focused on isn't just this like earthly or temporal deliverance, but he's talking about matters of ultimate salvation. Okay, that's what he has in mind. And he elaborates on, on what he means in this next phrase, verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Okay, so same idea here. Uh, I think Paul might have in mind, right, not being ashamed when he stands in front of the court, Uh, and the Roman tribunal and makes his case. But I think what he's more focused on is not just being vindicated before men, but being vindicated before God. And a couple of reasons why I think this is the case. First, that word there for eager expectation uh, is a very unique word in Scripture. In fact, commentators believe that Paul made up that word. Um, It's used elsewhere in Romans 8.19. Romans 8.19, and in that passage, it is used to describe the entire creation's eager longing for freedom from the curse. It describes how creation is groaning together uh, for redemption. Um, It speaks of this intense expectation of something that is sure to happen. Okay, so that's, that's the meaning behind that word, eager expectation. And then second, when Paul says that I will not be at all ashamed, that phrase there, He's actually borrowing language from the Old Testament, um, specifically from Job 13.18. Job 13.18. And you guys know the story of Job. Uh, God allows Satan to test this man, this man named Job, uh, his faith, through suffering. Right? And in a matter of days, uh, Satan afflicts him, and Job loses his family. He loses his fortune. He loses his health. And yet, at the end of all that, Job does not sin against God. And if you read through the book of Job, uh, most of the book isn't actually what happens to Job. All of that takes place in the first two chapters. But most of the book is actually how his friends try to make sense of what happened to him. And if you know anything about that story, they start out as really good friends at first, right? They like sit with him in silence. But then when you keep reading, you realize they kind of suck, right? They're like not good comforters at all. and their opinion is that, hey, Job, like we think that all of these bad things are happening in your life because there's sin in your life. God must be punishing you uh, for something that you've done wrong. 
And so in Job 13, Job responds to that, and he basically says, no, you guys are wrong. God knows my life. God knows that I've lived righteously. And this is what he says. He says, behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. So there's that phrase there. I know that I shall be in the right. I know that in the end, I will be vindicated before God. And that's what Paul is saying here. That whether I am acquitted, whether I am condemned to execution, I know in the end, in the court that matters, the heavenly court, that God will vindicate me. He says that God will deliver me. I will not be put to shame. And he says that what is going to happen to him, right, whatever verdict it is that will come down on him, it's uncertain, but Paul can still live with this sense of confidence. That he can be confident, one, in his future final deliverance, right, he, he will not be ashamed, God will vindicate him. And then secondly, he can be confident that whatever happens in the meantime until that day is his opportunity to magnify Jesus. And that's what he says in verse 20. He says, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See that? He says, I'm getting out of here. I'm, I'm going to be delivered one way or another, whether that's by life or by death. I'm getting out of here, but Christ will be honored in my body, whether I live or whether I die. My future is secure. See, knowing that our future is secure frees us to live courageously for Christ. It frees us to live boldly for Christ. Paul says that it is, it is his eager expectation and hope that he will not be at all ashamed. He will not be ashamed. Let me ask you, what brings you shame? What makes you shame, uh, feel ashamed? Uh, for us, we feel shame when we don't measure up in the eyes of others, right? When we don't get uh, the approval that we desire from others, what is the opposite of shame? The opposite of shame is honor. Um, I was in marching band when I was in high school. Don't judge me. Um, but it was my freshman year, and then our field show was Mulan. I went to an Asian school, so I figure like, our field show is Mulan. Um, and so I remember one rehearsal. We had this song that we did, um, and like partway, or halfway in the middle of the song, the whole band was supposed to shout, Honor. Like at this one like count or something, um, and so like you're supposed to be all intense about it and stuff. Uh, I remember at one rehearsal there was a senior who like did not care at all, and so uh, the the band con- band director like literally stopped rehearsal and made this one guy just keep shouting honor, uh, like for five minutes in front of the whole band, and every time like this guy did not care he'd just be like honor, <laughs> honor <laughs> for five five minutes. Um, that had nothing to do with what I'm going to say, but that's what I think of when I think of honor. I think of that guy who would not say honor. But anyways, we, we hate the feeling of shame, and so we seek to be honored. Right? The way that we avoid shame is to seek to be honored in the, ways of, in the eyes of others. For example, you don't want to feel shame about your grades, and so what do you do? You seek to be honored by scoring well on your tests, that people might compliment you on how intelligent you are. You don't want to feel shame for being a loner, uh, and so you seek to be honored by looking like you have lots of friends. Uh, you don't want to feel the shame of 
uh, a breakup or a broken relationship. And so what do you do? You seek to be honored by proving to this other person that your life is better off, that you're, you're doing totally fine. But look at what Paul says here. He says, I will not at all be ashamed if Christ is honored. See that? I will not at all be ashamed if Christ is honored. He says, if Christ is not honored, then I am ashamed. That Paul's entire life was devoted to Christ's honor. The, the ruling question in his life was not, can I magnify myself, but does my life magnify Christ? You see, what you feel shame about reveals to you what you love. The reason why you feel shame over something is because what you love is being threatened. But Paul shows us that when Christ becomes your greatest ambition, when he becomes your greatest concern, your greatest love, then you don't have to worry about everything else. Whether or not other people like you or approve of you is of no concern to you. You don't have to protect your reputation. You don't have to be anxious about the future. The list goes on and on. When Christ becomes your greatest concern, then you don't have to concern yourself with thousands of other unimportant things. You don't have to seek the approval of others. You don't have to protect yourself from being ashamed in front of others because you know that if Christ is your life, then your future is secure and you know that you have God's approval and his approval matters the most. So that's the first thing. When Christ is your life, then your future is secure. Number two, when Christ is your life, then death is to be with him. Death is to be with him. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So in verse 21, Paul gives us the reason why Christ will be honored, whether by life or by death. And the reason is this, because... For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? That famous verse from this passage, and we'll break it off uh, into two parts, and the two parts are obvious. First, for me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And in the Greek there, it actually uh, is just translated to live Christ. To live Christ. It means that everything in your life is about Jesus. That everything, completely, totally, at all times, your entire life, from the first day until the last, no compartmentalized living, right? There's no like, Sunday, I live, my life is Christ. Monday to Friday, my life is school. Uh, Saturday, my life is the weekend. No, his, the entirety of your life is Christ. That's what it means that everything is done for him, that Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration and direction and meaning and purpose to your existence, that Jesus is the reason for why you get up in the morning. He's the reason for why you do the things that you do. And so let me ask you, what would you fill in that blank with? All right, if you were to write that slogan for your own life, to live is fill in the blank, what would that be for you? Second thing that Paul says is that to die is gain. To die is gain. Now, I think that what happens um, when we hear this statement, maybe because we are so familiar with this passage, is that we jump too quickly over what it is to die. Right? What Paul says here, 
um, that today's gain, I think, is supposed to shock us a little bit. It's supposed to make us pause. Uh, it's not just some like Christian cliche on your on your m- coffee mug at home. See, I don't. We don't think about death often. When's the last time that you thought about death? Or if you do, then you risk being called morbid or emo, or like people think something's wrong with you. Maybe every once in a while you, you'll hear about the death of a famous person in the news. Um, 2018, Anthony Bourdain, Aretha Franklin, Kate Spade, John McCain. Uh, I don't know, people say all kinds of weird things about that stuff. Like, it happens three at a time. Heard that before. So maybe you hear it in the news and it'll be a jolting reminder of the reality of death even to uh, the greatest, even to the best of us. But I think for us, we don't think about death, death often, um, especially not at this age when there are so many things in your life which are pointing towards the future, right? As college students, you are clarifying um, what kind of vocation, what kind of career you want to pursue. You're making like five-year and 10-year plans. Um, You have big dreams, even though you have no money. You have boundless energy. You have youthfulness. You make plans with little regard to the end of your life. Um, We've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes in our Bible study at USD, and one of the most I think important lessons that the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us is that we have to learn to live in light of our death. We have to learn to live in light of our death. That uh, what Ecclesiastes says is that you can live a wise life or you can live a foolish life. You can be a Christian. You can even be a non-Christian. But death is the reality for everyone and we have to learn to acknowledge that and to live our lives accordingly in light of that reality. See, death teaches us to number our days that uh, we don't just like eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Rather, because death is a reality, because it is an end that will happen to everyone, that the things that we do in this life are given weight and meaning. Death doesn't make life meaningless. It actually gives us even more meaning in the things that we do. Now, I think we need to just sit on that a little bit and just like let that marinate before we jump too quickly ahead. Because death, for everyone, for anyone, for the non-Christian, should mean incalculable loss. That death is a threat to everything that you want to do. It frustrates your goals. It robs you of what you value most. You tell the normal person what they think, they think of death, and Undoubtedly, they will say that death is loss. Death is utter loss. See, death is only gain when our lives are Christ. And that is why what Paul says here is so shocking that if you fill in that blank, right, I asked you to think of how would you fill in that blank to live is what? If you fill in that blank with anything other than Christ, then dying will not be gained to you. Think about it. If for you to live is popularity or friends or relationships, then dying is not gain. Dying is lost because you're gone and you might even be forgotten. If to live is your health, then dying is not gain because the one thing that you've been trying so hard to prevent, whether that's through like working out or being a vegan or like drinking apple cider vinegar, whatever you want to do, the one thing that you're trying to prevent prevent from happening is going to happen to you. That is utter loss. 
If to live is to be successful and make lots of money, then dying is not gain because you don't take any of that money with you after you die. I was reading um, just a quote from Steve Jobs, and uh, it's super sad, but he was saying, this was like from one of the interviews right before he died. He said, he said this about his kids. He said, I wanted my kids to know me. I know I wasn't always there for them, and I wanted them to know why and to understand what I did. Now, that is tragic. That if your life is all about making it big, being successful, then death is lost. Death is a reminder of like all the other areas of your life that you have failed. If to live is anything on this earth, then death only serves as an enemy. This life is the best that it will ever get. But if your life is Christ and death, Paul says, is gain, and we know that for us as believers, life is the worst that it will ever get. But when to live is Christ, Paul says, then to die is gain. To die is gain. And just think about that for a second. Um, like, think about what he's saying. He uses the word gain. Okay, do you know what that word means? Gain. Right, say you go to uh, the casino, hypothetically, uh, with $100 and you walk away with $100. Right? That's, that's pretty good for most of us, probably. But that's not gain. You know, like, you, you have the same amount of money that you came with. That's not gain, even though that might be good for you. Uh, if you don't like that example, imagine going to, like, Dave and Buster's, and you walk away with a prize without having spent any money. Okay, that's the only way it's gain. It's not gain if you just go home with, like, a stuffed animal. That's, that's definitely loss, especially since you spent, like, $20 trying to win it. Gain means that you are better off. Right? Like, you weigh on one side, all of the loss that you will experience when you die. Like, you will lose your family, you will lose your career, you lose wealth, friends, hobbies, you lose your unfinished plans and your dreams, and you weigh being with Christ on the other side of that scale. And Paul says that that comes out to gain. You win. And the reason that death is gain for the Christian is, he says, because we get to depart and be with him. Or you get to be with Jesus. We're not just in Christ, and Paul speaks of that a lot, but we are finally with him. We get to experience unbroken fellowship with Jesus. It's no longer just by faith, but we actually get to behold him by sight. That's why it's gain. And notice the word that he uses there. Um, he uses the word depart, right? That, that death is just a departure um, for the Christian. I don't know about you guys. I like, really don't like the airport. I hate traveling. Um, well, I hate the airport, I like traveling, um, but like one of the worst, I don't know, times is when the time between you, when you board and when you actually depart, right? Because it's like, this is totally a waste of time. I'm like sitting in this plane, we're, we're not going anywhere. And so it's always a relief to me when, when the plane actually gets off the ground because like you can start counting down uh, to when you'll be at your destination. That's what Paul is saying, that death is a departure for the Christian. It's leaving one place, it's going home. That's what death is for the Christian. He says, my, de- my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. So like, look at what he says here. He says, death, in fact, is actually preferable for the Christian. It is preferable if you are a believer. That is a profound understanding and perspective of death. And I don't know about you, but I I know that I need to be reminded of this often. 
that to depart and to be with Christ is far better. I know that uh, for me, when I die, like, I, I know that I'm going to be with Christ, and I know that it'll be nice, but like, I'm still here, and there's like, quite a few nice things that I, I want to enjoy still. And so I forget that. I forget that it is far better, like Paul says, and so I need, at least for myself, I, I know I need other people to remind me of that. I need people um, who like long to depart and just be with Jesus more than I do. I need uh, people like that sister in Christ who struggles with long-term disability or sickness, or I need that brother in Christ uh, who struggles faithfully with like same-sex attraction, who just desperately longs uh, for the day when sin and, and all of its effects will be lifted. I know for myself I need that reminder. And so what does it look like to truly believe that to die is gain? Well, two things. First, that in our dying, it means that we don't fear death. That we don't fear death as believers. It is de- a departure, as we said. It's no longer, death is no longer this just bitter-tasting poison, but it is, it is a bitter-tasting medicine. It's still bitter, but it, it, it's to be with Christ. It transfers us into the presence of Jesus. And then second, in our living it means that we live with a recognition that the best is yet to come. We live with the recognition that the best is yet to come, that there's nothing in this life that can bring you or I as much joy and satisfaction as Jesus can. It means that we don't live life in this world in fear of what you might lose. So you don't clutch onto what we have. We don't concern ourselves with gaining for ourselves in this life. To die is to gain, is what Paul says. And that means for us that if we gain Christ in the end, then we are free to give this life away for the sake of others. John Piper said it well. He said, Christ is glorified in you when he is more precious, than, more precious to you than all that life can give or death can take. When Christ is more precious to you than all that life can give or death can take. Last point here. When, when to live is Christ. Number three, then life is to be spent for others. In our passage, Paul lets us in on this internal dilemma that he has. Verse 22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So, uh, first of all, I appreciate that Paul admits feeling this tension. He feels this tension between uh, his own personal desire, his own personal preference, and what he knows is his Christian duty and responsibility. And I know this is a familiar, a familiar passage, but like, have you ever really thought about the options that Paul is choosing between here? Okay, he's literally choosing like, departing and being with Jesus or doing fruitful labor for the sake of others. Like, that is what he's choosing between This is what he says, verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So as Paul weighs his options, he concludes that it is better, it is more profitable, he says, to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Now when he says that, uh, the Philippians will have reason to glory in Christ Jesus because of him. He's not, uh, he's not speaking boastfully. Okay? He's not like, thinking of himself as too important. Um, I think all that he's saying there 
is he is convinced that God will allow him to continue living um, and that like, if God allows him to be released from prison, then that is just all the more reason for the Philippines to glorify God. Right? The fact that he would be uh, released from prison is evidence that, that uh, human attempts cannot stop the advance of the gospel. Okay, so that, I think that's, that's what he's saying there. Um, like we said earlier, the reality of death and even the fact that death serves as a departure for the Christian to be with Jesus, those things don't make this life any less meaningful. And I think these verses prove that to us, that even though death is preferable for the Christian, that if you had a choice, we, we would choose death to be with Jesus, we still have in this life motivation to live. We still have motivation to live faithfully and fruitfully in this life. And what is that motivation? He says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. This is the motivation for your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy in the faith. In verse 22, Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Okay, so the motivation that we have in this life to live is to live fruitfully laboring for others for their progress and joy in the faith. Paul says, I'm willing to give up my own personal preferences for that end. For your progress and joy in the faith. And so what do we learn from that? We learn this, that your life is a stewardship for the service of others. Your life is a stewardship for the service of others. As long as you are here on earth, Christian, as long as God has given you breath, that you have motivation, you have reason to live for the glory of God, and you have opportunity to be useful. There's no such thing as a useless Christian. God has purpose for you here that all of life is meant to be lived for the progress and the joy of others. I mean, you think about Paul's situation, right? If anyone had an excuse to just like stop thinking about others for a minute and just to worry about himself, it was Paul. He's writing from prison, like it's, a, it's a, an obstacle to his crazy, like superior ministry. And yet he is still thinking about others. And I think that poses the question to us, for you, like where does thinking of others end? At what point do you stop thinking of other people? And what is that line for you? Oh, like when my schedule is open, then I'll start thinking about others. But once like, I get busy, like that, that's the line for me. Or when my resources are plentiful, like I'm, I'm happy to be generous with others, but when things are tight, like I gotta worry about myself. Or when I've taken care of my comforts first, or when my circumstances are good, the list goes on and on. And yet Paul says you labor for the joy of, the, of others. That is why you are here. He says prefer others. Don't, uh, don't choose your own preferences. Prefer others. Serve others even if you don't receive recognition. It doesn't matter if you don't get anything back. He says it's not my progress. It's not my joy. Your progress and your joy in the faith, the glory of God. Paul teaches us that your life's significance, its meaning, is not in yourself. It's not in yourself. It's in others, and it's lived to the glory of God. And so what does that look like for you? Like, What might that look like uh, for you to give up your personal preferences for the sake of others? 
one simple way I think we see from the text that we can spend ourselves for others is to pray for them. He says in uh, verse 18, uh, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ. So Paul, totally confident in the sovereignty of God, still asks for the Philippians' prayers, right? Because his, their prayers can minister to him in a very special and unique way, the presence of the Holy Spirit, to allow him to be courageous. You can pray for others. And I know that's like a can't, like kind of cop-out answer, um, but do you actually do it? Like, do you, do you actually pray for people? Oh, no, I, I forget to pray for people. Well, do you, do you take practical steps to help yourself to remember to pray for others? Right, can you prefer others in that way? I think when you read this passage, um, it's worth asking, like, why does Paul even let us in on this dilemma? Right, why does he let us in on this kind of struggle? Um, I, I mean, I think in a very real sense, Paul truly did believe that God would deliver him, and he truly was convinced that, Paul, that, that God would allow him to continue living for the sake of the Philippians and for God's greater glory. But, I mean, on the other hand, Paul was, it wasn't up to him, right? Like, he was totally subject to what the Roman government wanted to do with him. He was totally subject to uh, whatever would happen to him. But I think Paul writes all of this, first of all, to show us his deeply rooted conviction that this is just what he truly believes, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that this wasn't just some like inspirational slogan um, that he just says, but this was really the way that he viewed all of life. And second, I think Paul is trying to show us, as he does in the rest of this book of Philippians, what it looks like even in matters of life and death what it looks like to, to consider the interest of others above his own. He's trying to show us, like, this is what it looks like to actually prefer others, to consider their interest above your own, even if it means choosing others over being with Jesus. That this is what it looks like even when I am in prison. This is what it looks like even when I think about the reason for my own existence. See, ultimately, Paul's example points us to Christ's example, and that's what he's going to do in chapter 2. We see here that Paul was willing to postpone heaven for the sake of fruitful ministry, but Christ was willing to give up heaven. Christ was willing to give up his joys for the sake of our progress and our joy in the faith, that God might be magnified. That only, not only Paul, but also Christ said, whether by life or by death, I will do whatever it takes for your joy. Uh, I remember last year, about this time, um, I met with Bree's parents, my wife, uh, to ask for their permission to marry her. And so uh, we're like eating dinner and like, things are going well, uh, conversation's going well. And then towards the end of the dinner, uh, her mom pulls out this folder and she like, takes out this sheet of paper, and she's like, okay, last thing is we just would like you to answer these eight essay questions <laughs> and return like, this to us next time we meet. Um, and so it wasn't personal. Brie had to do that as well. Uh, she had the same questions, except for one question. Uh, for her, it was like, why do you want to marry Francis? And then for me, it was like, why do you think you deserve Brie? <laughs> But looking back, uh, going through all of that, it's always easy for me to think that I, like, I put in so much work uh, to get Bree's hand in marriage. Uh, but I'm always uh, put to shame when I hear the story about the missionary 
Adoniram Judson. And maybe you've heard this story before. I'll, I'll close with this illustration. Uh, Adoniram Judson was the first Baptist missionary from America sent to Burma in the early 1800s. Shortly before he left, he met his lovely wife, Anne, and a month later, this is what he wrote uh, to his prospective father-in-law asking for Anne's hand in marriage. Listen carefully. This is right before he's going to go on missions. He wants to marry Anne. He says this. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Judson married Anne on February 5th, 1812, and they left for Burma two weeks later. And Anne never came back. She died in 1826 after having suffered from disease, stress, and loneliness. And and Judson uh, died many years later, but he left behind 100 churches, 8,000 Burmese believers. And today, Burma has the third largest number of Baptists in the world, much of that largely thanks to Judson's ministry. When to live is Christ, when we know that our future is secure. We know that death is to be with him. And guys, we are free to give ourselves away. We are free to give this life away for the glory of Christ and the good of others. We don't have to hoard it for ourselves. And sure, that might not necessarily mean throwing everything away and hopping on a boat uh, to go on missions somewhere like Judson did. Maybe that might be true for you. But it does mean being willing, perhaps, to release your grip on what you might want your future to look like. It might mean releasing your grip on what you hope that married life might one day look like, or even further down the line, what you would want for your children, or what your vision of a comfortable life looks like. Why? What is the reason for all of that? Because your life is not about you anymore. Your life is not about you. Your life is about Christ. And when your life is all about him, then your future is secure and to die is to be with him and you are free to give it away for the sake of others. This was Paul's conviction. And I pray that it would be ours as well. Let's pray together. God, what profound and shocking words that Paul would say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And yet, God, we confess that for us, to live is not Christ. To live is our own uh, concerns, school, friends, our own reputation, comforts, pursuits. God, help us um, to change that. Help us to make Christ our greatest ambition. Help us to uh, really see the joy that comes from that. 
that we have a future that is secure. We have uh, no fear of death, um, that death is just to be with him, and that we are free, and we have the privilege of living this life for the sake of others. So impress that on our hearts, our minds. God, help us to live uh, in light of that. God, we thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.